Welcome to the Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEO Podcast. I'm Martin Harsberger, President of Measurable Results, LLC, and martinharsberger.com. I'm a retired CEO of both a manufacturing company and a third-party logistics company. We were lucky enough to grow both to eight-figure organizations. I've been consulting with small and mid-tier companies for the past 16 years. Our mission with this podcast is to provide a forum to help CEOs in these critical industries share their stories, share best practices, and learn from each other. If you'd like to be a guest in our podcast, go to www.martinharsberger.com slash apply. Each interview will take about 30 minutes. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Supply Chain CEOs. This morning, I have Justin Nussbaum, founder and CEO of Ascend Manufacturing. Welcome, Justin. Thank you for having me, Martin. Well, the reason I have you on here, Justin, I know you're not in production yet, but one of the things I want to do with uh, with my podcast is try to introduce new technologies as they come out. And I was really fascinated with what I saw with yours. So give us a little bit of background about your company and, and what you do. Yeah, so my company is Ascend Manufacturing. We were actually founded in 2018. And the whole company actually came about because a, of a need in the manufacturing industry. So back when I was getting my PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of South Florida, I got together with an advisor and we wanted to look at the issues in the manufacturing industry. And this includes everything from, you know, the initial uh, uh, mining of the materials to refining, manufacturing, supply chain to get all those parts to who needs them and get all the raw materials to the manufacturers. And so we realized there were some significant bottlenecks in the industry. And, you know, this specifically is that it's, it's, more expensive to have parts manufactured domestically, you know, here at home rather than it is to go to China or India, something like that. And it takes a lot of time then to get those parts back to us over in the US. So there's typically long lead times. And so we wanted to invent a technology that was capable of solving those problems. And that's really where this technology was born from. And so the sole purpose or the sole focus of my PhD was in inventing this technology called large area projection centering. Um, and since we've actually invented that technology, we, uh, I was awarded a fellowship in the Innovation Crossroads uh, program. So that's hosted by the Oak Ridge, uh, Oak Ridge National Labs and funded also through the Department of Energy's Advanced Manufacturing Office. And so through that program, we literally get to work with the world's experts in additive manufacturing and 3D printing and developing this technology into something um, that's very mature and able to solve the problems in the industry. That's neat. Uh, I, I looked at your video here, and, and uh, the little I know about manufacturing 3D printing, I work with a client where we work in the fracking industry, and we were trying to create mm-hmm. a dissolvable frack ball that went down and would dissolve after a period of time. Okay. Yep. 3D printing, which got to the point was the easiest because they were 32 different sizes. It wasn't feasible to do molds, that kind of thing. Yep, exactly. <laughs> the thing about the filaments and, and the different, different uh, materials. Uh, PLC, PLA, that kind of thing. And it took, mm-hmm. gosh, I got 12 hours to print a, a two-inch ball. And I'm looking at yours, and I look at your picture here, and it looks like you're throwing, you're not using filament, you're not using pellets, you're using the powder itself. So you don't have to convert it into a pellet or into a filament to use, correct? You can just take it out of the bag and use it. Exactly. Which is yes, a so, <laughs> yes. yeah, it really is. And you know that most people are familiar with those filament-based 3D printers. You can literally have them in, on your desktop. My camera is facing the other way. You see, I have a 3D printer on my desk over there. And so the the issue with those printers and with lots of the printers in the industry 
um, is that they form a fused material at just a single point, and you kind of scan that back and forth to build a layer. Then you start again, you build another layer on top of that, and you continue adding these layers until the full part's complete. And so there's much faster ways of doing that, even in the powder bed world, which is where we work. Um, they have lasers and electron beams, things like that, that move very, very quickly. But the problem is you're forming and fusing material at a single point. So you're, you're essentially scanning the whole surface. So if you want two parts, it's going to take double the amount of time. For us, the big difference is that we're now exposing a large area all at once. And so that means we can manufacture much, much faster than anyone in the market. Um, and so our printers are specifically capable of uh, manufacturing about 200,000 parts per day from each one of our machines. So you can kind of think of that as overnight injection molding. You know, you no longer need those expensive molds that take, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. They take two to five months to make. We can provide those parts literally just within days and you have none of the costs or lead times associated with the mold too. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty, pretty interesting. So uh, I'm looking at your, your uh, image here on your website and you got a high intensity projector uh, and you're talking about closed loop camera. So do you do, you do it off a of drawing or do you do it off of, tell me how you, tell me how you load a part into this thing. Yeah, so the process starts just like any other 3D printing process is we have to start with a solid model, um, some kind of CAD file of what that part looks like. We load that into our software and then our software takes it and slices it up into individual layers. So the way that our technology works from there is we use a very, very high intensity projector. So it's just like any other projector anyone's ever used before, it just creates an image. The big difference with ours is it's much higher intensity. So if we hold a piece of wood up in front of our projector, when we project that image onto the piece of wood, we're actually gonna burn a hole through the piece of wood in the shape of the image. So it's not a system you wanna put your hand in front of. You know, 3D printing doesn't work out for us. We can always fall back on uh, doing branding, things like that, <laughs> instant tattoos. <laughs> So that's where um, the heat comes from to does the actual, okay, that's what I was trying correct. to Correct. And then from there, what we do is we project this very, very high intensity image onto the powder bed, which you mentioned. And now that's how we're able to form and fuse a whole 2D area all at once. The gotcha. unique thing about our technology too, is besides the fact of using that projector and that it scales very well to large volumes, is that we have the cameras that you mentioned. We have both optical and thermal cameras that are watching the entire process. And if anything goes wrong during that print, it's automatically adjusting and fixing that. And so we get very, very high repeatability in our parts. We have very little uh, failed components once we have that system fully enabled. Um, and it also has full traceability through the entire manufacturing process too. Cool. So that's, that's limited to, to plastics, obviously, right? Uh, yes, so right now, yeah, we, we are uh, primarily just focused on plastics and um, uh, composites. So, plastics loaded with other materials such as ceramics, metals, uh, things of that nature. So when you talk about 2,000, two, uh, 200,000 parts is what you said, correct? A day? Yes, 200,000. Is there a size, obviously there's a size restraint, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so how big, how big a table can you create that, that does this? Yeah, so right now we're able to create parts um, up to about six inches in size. And this is our, with our earlier kind of pilot system to make smaller parts. Um, we're looking into making a handful of, of parts for a couple different industries right now. Once we get into our larger volume production machine, we can create parts up to about three feet in size, so significantly larger. Although we see the value not, not in creating a couple of large parts, more so in these kind of quick turn, fast turnaround injection molding areas. So we're creating a larger number of smaller parts. Yeah, but this faster turnaround, obviously you eliminate the dye, which is 
which is a concern anyway, because the tool and die makers are becoming more and more scarce, right? It, right, exactly. And you know, one of the reasons I'm so excited to speak with you about this today is I know your whole um, podcast is on the supply chain and how do we improve the supply chain and fix all the problems there. And so there's lots of companies out there who are you know, digitizing things, trying to make things a lot faster. Um, you know, essentially what I would call step increases in what we have today. So you're just making the capabilities that we have more efficient and quicker and, and hopefully more cost-effective too. Um, the big difference for us is what we want to do is we want to completely change the way that supply looks. So we want to fundamentally eliminate some of those processes altogether. So right now, we are offering contract manufacturing services where we print parts on demand for our customers. What we're going to be getting to in the future is we actually want to ship our machines to customers to allow them to manufacture on site. So now that just means you have to have your powdered material and you can manufacture anything you want from that. You don't have to have a mold overseas or at another facility, do the manufacturing there, have them ship it to you. You're manufacturing on site and on demand. So you no longer also have to have these very large warehouses, which are logistical nightmares um, where you're stockpiling millions of dollars worth of inventory for all these spare parts, just because it's more cost-effective to manufacture a large number than dealing with those changeovers between manufacturing lines. And so with a number of these systems, you answered the question I was going to ask you. So it's good. Keep the. <laughs> I was going to ask you: Are you going to do? Are you, your your strategy obviously is to sell machines, right? Not to not to do contract manufacturing. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit of both. For us, it's just quicker and more efficient to get into the market by starting with contract manufacturing. You know, we have a machine that's operational now. It doesn't. You know, it, it works. It's not the prettiest machine though, which is okay. You know, and even our early volume or our, sorry, our, our early version production models, they don't have to be that pretty if we're just using them in-house. You know, we can have engineers that run them while we're working on upgrading them to the point where we feel comfortable shipping those to customers. Well, one of the obvious questions that comes up, and you have to forgive me because my background was tech as well, mainframes and maintenance. The big, right. big thing that comes up is maintenance. Um, I buy one of these machines and it costs me a lot of money. And, you know, I'm looking at the high, uh, high tech uh, uh, pieces. How do you how do you how do you uh, plan on supplying maintenance and support to that? So we do plan on using third party providers to actually provide um, all those maintenance contracts to our customers um, and and deal with that whole distribution network as well. That way, it's a little easier for us as a company to uh, distribute that maintenance, you know, across the whole country rather than having to hire a large team of people and make sure that they're ready to go on the fly. So we'll produce all the parts that our maintenance contractors need to perform that maintenance work and any services from that point. And they can be on site right away because we'll be having, or I should say our distributors will have offices across the whole US. So your uh, design would hopefully be modular. You're just replacing a, a, a subset or subassembly and get it back up and running and do the repair somewhere else or what? Um, so it, it depends. So there's there's really not a lot of maintenance items on there. There's a couple seals that are purposely made to be quick and easy to change. Um, specifically, when you're changing materials, if you go from one material that has a vastly different melting temperature than another, you're going to have to change out those seals so that they don't uh, melt and lock up in the system, essentially. Um, and beyond that, there are a couple other items, but they do not need to be changed that often. So we have some very high-powered lasers, um, and those can operate continuously for quite a while, you know, years, but until we have to worry about uh, replacing them. And the systems can track the power of those lasers and see, okay, how quick are they degrading? When do we actually need to look into doing those maintenance? 
items. So it's, we don't have to stick with a, um, you know, with a scheduled maintenance of, okay, every three years, you need to perform this number of, you know, repairs or, or, or service these many components. We're tracking the performance of the system and we can just tell the operator, okay, look, you know, you need to replace this within the next six months, within the next three months. Okay, it's time to replace this now. So you see it coming. And really the only mechanical I see on there are the pistons, the refill and build pistons and the rest is pretty much electrical, right? Electronics. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot of electronics. There's a lot of mechanical components to the system too. Um, and also the entire system works inside essentially a, you can kind of think of it as a large oven too. So there's a lot right. of heat input into the system as well. So one of the things I want to ask you is you're a young guy, uh, smart guy. Why, why manufacturing? So I've, I've really, I've always been interested in manufacturing, even from when I was a really young kid, I guess you could say I had, had the knack. You know, when I was younger, they we used to have these devices called VCRs, right? Um, and so I, I would get them. <laughs> yep. Well, there's going to be, I would imagine there's a number of uh, other people listening to these podcasts that are going to be like, VCR, I've never had one of those. Um, and so, you know, just random devices like that when I was a kid, I would just love taking them apart and just learning about how they work and, and how they function. And so that's really what bred my interest in mechanical engineering to begin with. Once I started going through uh, my undergraduate degree, I started just realizing how amazing um, that industry is and how literally the entire world economy is upheld on manufacturing. Obviously yeah. there's lots of other pieces, but we're talking right now on products that have been manufactured. The entire supply chain relies on manufacturing. And so literally the entire world revolves around manufacturing. And so I see this, um, this industry specifically manufacturing as where we can make the largest change in what happens with, you know, humanity and the economy as we move into the future. Well, the reason I ask you that, it obviously, is one of the things I'm trying to do with my podcast is reignite a, an interest in manufacturing for young folks coming out of college. Because, you know, when I grew up a long time ago, <laughs> but manufacturing high tech or high manufacturing was a, was a great job. I mean, tool and die makers, uh, maintenance people, I mean, made good money to that. Now, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, nobody wants to look at it. It's not a glamorous profession. Yeah. I see yeah. a guy like yourself with a, Obviously, you could have done anything you wanted to, to pick manufacturing. I had to ask a loaded question to say why, because I agree with you 100% about it's critical. It is. It's critical to the survival of the country. And yes. I, yeah, it definitely is. You know, and I, I agree, you know, everyone today, or I shouldn't say everyone, many people today, they're aware of manufacturing. They know what happens in the background, but nobody or, or not many people are as interested in it anymore. They just assume that it's going to work and that it's going to be there, you know, in the future for them. Um, but it is a quite complex area that needs a lot of extremely smart minds working on it to fix the problems that we have now and to find solutions for the future too. You know, specifically as we start looking at global warming and other issues like that, we need to start thinking about how do we make manufacturing more efficient, both for the planet, but also for the people. So how do we get our parts much faster? How do we lower the cost of products so that it can be more sustainable? And then how do we make materials that are sustainable moving into the future as well? And so that's that's really where my passion is, is solving these problems. I think it's obvious, you're great, you're exactly, you're right on. But we talked, you know, the government's so so fixated on global warming and climate control and everything and, and, and trying to eliminate fossil fuel use in the US. Well, that's great, but if you look at the ocean right now, <laughs> There are zillions of ships out there churning diesel, trying to get stuff over here that costs maybe 
five bucks to sell, right? So yeah, where's, yeah. The, where's the, I mean, we've got it. You're right. You got to look at the whole supply chain, not just a piece of it. And right. I had a, a thing on LinkedIn. I've been tracking that uh, somebody out in Long Beach has been tracking how many ships are sitting offshore. And one Sunday he had a hundred ships out there just idling. So I thought, I wonder what the whole supply chain looks like. So there is a ship tracker software. I don't know if you ever looked at it, but I looked at the whole uh, Atlantic Pacific piece at once. It looks like you can walk across the ocean if so many ships out there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Suez. I mean, it's just jammed up. So when you're talking about global warming and, and climate control, I mean, it would be a lot cheaper just to make it here and use it and try to do what we're doing with the with the overall picture. It's crazy. Yep. I had no idea. That, it was that easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, so the the transportation industry is one of the uh, major contributors to CO two emissions and other other um, emissions into the atmosphere. And so if we're looking at estimates, looking out maybe about 25 years or so, if we don't make a significant change to the transportation industry, we're going to see um, about 40% of the global emissions is going to come from just the transportation industry alone. Um, so it's, it's definitely a very large emitter in the industry as far as CO2 goes, and we need to find ways to cut those costs. So that's, that's one of the things that we're trying to do with this technology, is you now no longer need to ship these products. You don't need to manufacture them overseas and deal with all the CO2 emissions and cost, uh, of course, all the costs and risks of shipping parts too. All the times we hear about containers falling off of ships and, um, you know, there's a lot of risk associated with it. What happens if, a, if a, uh, a barge gets stuck in a canal or what happens if there is a backup of all those ships as well? So there's a lot of risk associated with just the shipping alone. And so we want to just completely eliminate that, manufacture the products directly on site. Yeah, perfect. Uh, it's yep. interesting, all the things you mentioned with COVID, the last 18 months, all that happened. We had a ship stuck in the Suez Canal. With, <laughs> so the yeah. whole supply chain in the last 18 to 24 months has just been uh, challenged, obviously. And I think yeah. we, we took it for granted. Now I think people are standing back and looking and saying, holy cow, we got to fix this, right? Yes, it's, you know, it's the supply chain is very fragile. Um, everyone just kind of assumed it just works in the background and it did until you start having problems with it. And we've just seen those effects compounding right now. So that's, that's one of those things that we just want to de-risk essentially the supply chain and provide more options to, to manufacture those parts. There was no plan B when we outsourced all that stuff, we outsourced everything. And so when, when it breaks, there's no, there's no fallback time, you know, I mean, if you do a strap, mm -hmm. you always have, a, you always have some sort of fallback or redundancy. We didn't have any. Yeah. Right. You know, if you're manufacturing your products in China, you might have another facility in China that's ready to go if, if yeah, exactly. the other one's not able to supply those parts. But what happens if you just can't get your components from China to begin with? You know, it doesn't matter how many different manufacturers you have ready to go in China if uh, you have no no way of actually getting those parts to you here in the U.S. The other is raw material. One of the things that, you know, in working with clients and, and elastomers, I've done a lot with that, with plastics. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of that raw material comes from China. We don't we don't have any of it here. A lot of the chemicals and PLCs and all that. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we even mining. I mean, we, we've pretty much eliminated mining in the country. So at part yeah. of your planning process has to include what are you going to do with raw materials? Yeah. So you know, China definitely lucked out as far as the minerals that they have available in their soils. Um, unfortunately, we just don't have many of those here. And that is one area that we are still a little more uh, reliant on. You know, we still need that raw material to 3D print with. 
the great ability that we have with our technology that many of these other powder bed technologies don't have the capability to do is that we can print with a very wide variety of materials. So when you look at the industry, the powder bed industry, it's mostly nylon, of 90% nylon. And it's not because 90% of the manufacturing customers want nylon parts. It's just because that's the only material that processes very well in that technology. And so we found that we can print with materials from lots of different industries. So that includes both the additive manufacturing industry and then lots of other industries that they also use powders in already. Uh, and we've been able to successfully print. We've put over 20 materials in our system so far, and we've been able to print with every single one of them. No, that's so kind there's of the question I was going to ask. That's great. Yeah, so you can you can buy these materials almost anywhere in the world and, and continue your 3D printing process. So what's your focus for the next two years? So right now, what we're heavily focused on is we're in the fundraising uh, phase right now. Uh, we are bringing in um, a couple million dollars to build that production system, which I mentioned, and then begin scaling up from there. So produce that production system and start those contract manufacturing services, essentially. Great. Well, I certainly wish you luck. How do people get in touch with you to ask you questions? Yeah, so uh, I, would, I would invite them to go to our website, which is ASCEND-3D.com. So Ascend3D.com. Um, and contact us through the website. I'll be personally reading those responses and getting back to anyone who uh, is interested. Great. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Martin. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEOs. If you're a successful CEO in manufacturing or supply chain that would like to be part of the program, please visit www.martinharsberger.com slash apply. If you got some value out of the interview, please share it on social media. We'd really appreciate it. Also, if you know someone that would make a great guest, tag them and let them know about the show. Again, our mission is to focus on manufacturing and supply chain CEOs. We'd like to share your story and provide industry trends and updates that would interest our listeners. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up ratings and interviews go a long way in promoting the show. You can connect with me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Martin Harshberger uh, or through my website, www.martinharshberger.com. Again, we appreciate it. Thanks for listening.